Betches Media presents. If you feel depressed and if you feel anxious and you feel confused, you know what? Welcome to the club. Gaspacho police. Oh my God! What a stupid son of a bitch. He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. The Betches Sup Podcast. Sayonara, sucker! Hello and welcome to the Betches Up Podcast. I'm Sammy Sage and today we are joined by a very special guest in honor of the International Day of Reflection on the Genocide Against Tutsi in Rwanda. Today I am joined by Yvette Ruga Sagahunga, a Tutsi survivor. Welcome Yvette, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sammy. I'm uh, honored to be a part of this program. Thank you. So, I mean, today is a, a very special day of commemoration and... Um, I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell your story as a survivor. And um, I guess I will just let you kind of start that, you know, in your own words. Today, Rwanda rose to remember. Remember the horrors that uh, Tutsis and any Rwandan that looked like a Tutsi that was defined to be affiliated to Tutsi went through. Today, we are reflecting on those horrific moments of shootings, of screamings, of that indescribable feeling of loneliness, when we woke up to be torn from our families. We woke up to be forced to bid farewell to our loved ones, most of whom we did not have another opportunity to meet. Today is a day of sorrow. Today we remember that uh, more than one million seventy-four thousand and seventeen Rwandans were killed in nineteen ninety-four because they were deemed to be Tutsi. We remember that uh, 53% of them were between the age of zero and 24. We remember that uh, every day from April 7, 1994, 10,000 and 740 Tutsi were killed every day. 447 Tutsi were killed every hour. That means eight Tutsi killed a minute. We remember that these horrors did not fall out of the blue. There had been over three decades, if not more, actually, over centuries, planned. Planned by the then extremist Hutu government. 
supported by many countries, international organizations. We remember that over three decades, a number of Tutsis had been living in a land that should have been their own, but they were treated as third-class people. To some cases, they were treated as, to borrow the language of our perpetrators, as cockroaches, as snakes, as subhumans. Today, we also remember that 28 years later, we are in a much better place than anyone could have ever thought in 1994. We appreciate opportunities like this where the international community wraps its arms around us in memory of the more than one million victims of the 1994 genocide against Tutsi in Rwanda. We remember and value all signs from different individuals, from our immediate neighbors to the far foreign lands where we are comforted where we see gestures that honor our collective duty to remember. But by doing so, we remember to ensure that this last genocide of the 20th century will forever serve as a lesson and a weapon to make never again a reality. In 1994, I was only 14 years old. Even then, though I was young, I had already tested to the bitterness of being a Tutsi. From my very young age, I had more than once been alerted that as a Tutsi, girl, no matter how smart I was in school, my chances of being admitted in any public school beyond primary level was close to none. I had seen my siblings excelling in their classes to never be admitted. I was only very, very lucky to be among those few that somehow miraculously made it to a public high school. I had seen, I have heard, I had witnessed how Tutsis were horribly treated in Rwanda. I had seen my own father, my own family member lose their jobs just because they were Tutsi. I had seen my own um, father's family, my grand paternal grandmother, 
losing everything she owned when Tutsis in her region in the northern part of Rwanda were killed with their belongings being rooted in their homes being burnt. So when 1994 came, yes, I could not fathom. In fact, I did not even know the meaning of the word genocide. But I somehow had seen so many horrors. And of course, most had even been somehow miraculously hidden from me by my parents who thought they were protecting us. But I knew enough to know that as a Tutsi in Rwanda, I wasn't treated as a citizen. 1994 came, I had been among the few that had placed their only hope on the men and women of the Rwandan Patriotic Front since 1990 when they launched the liberation struggle. So the night of April 6th in 1994, could have been just a normal night. I had just returned home from visiting my maternal aunt. My joy of reconnecting with my siblings, my joy of being home after having spent a few weeks away from my father, my grandmother, and my two older sisters and my brother did not last in the middle of the evening, we lost electricity. And that noise that uh, came with the shooting of the president, Juvenal Habyarimana, was heard throughout the city of Kigali where we lived. We, the entire city became dark. We had to go to bed without necessarily understanding what was happening. We had been the victims of the increasing tension that had been targeting different Tutsis in the city of Kigali. But it wasn't really until the next day that we learned from my father that the uh, plan of the then president, Shuvenad Habyanimana, was shot and he immediately was killed on spot. The initial feeling was a feeling of excitement because the young girl that I was, I assumed that meant the end of our nightmares as Tutsis. We were so wrong. That same day, that same morning, my brother, 20 years old, immediately knew that he had to flee out of fear of being persecuted. Not long after, we also had to find a way to leave our home. At that particular time, the national radio, the public radio, and um, the uh, RTLM, which is now popularly known as the uh, Hatred Radio, or the radio of uh, that really did um, extensively spread the uh, propaganda, the genocide propaganda on behalf of the killers, was already um, requesting every Rwandan 
to revenge the president. They were already pointing to Tutsis using nicknames that we knew so well to be ours, cockroaches, snakes, to be killed. They were already calling everyone to stay home, yet the trained militias that we knew well um, in Herahamni and in Muzamugambi were already doing their um, patrols on the street, sometimes going door to door. That night, we managed to uh, hide in one of our Hutu neighbors' uh, carpentry workshop. The next day, we had to run further away from our home. And that is the last time we were together as a family. Um, on the 9th of April, I was hiding at a Hutu neighbor's not um far away from our home because I actually did not manage to make it further than um you know few meters before uh killers could catch my father and myself on our way. And after so many hours of psychological torture and threats to killers, my father had managed to buy our lives. But we could only go back to our home. We couldn't continue to where we thought could be my safe heaven. So hiding at Innocent's house, um, I could only stay there. But my father was forced to go back in our home. Um, some Hutu had somehow managed to manipulate my father leading him to believe that he could find another house a bit further away from where we lived uh, to um, bring all his children to hide there. So my father came to check on me at uh, Innocent's house to break the news. He had also sent messengers to bring my two sisters and my brother um, back home from their hiding places. And as my older brother, Lambert, was uh, closer to where our home was, a gang of militia caught him. They, When they saw him, they tried to catch him. He managed to run for his life. For some reason, militia then were moving with dogs. Um, and of course, Using uh, most of the time they were drunk, they were using uh, whistles. So this chaotic movement of killers got my father to step out of Innocent's house, and um, I tried to follow him, but he turned around and promised to be right back so long as I stayed where I was. So I stayed there, watching my father move away with Innocent. Few minutes later, they shooting that took his life still ring in my ears today and forever. Innocent, few minutes later, came back to announce that my father was killed. The screaming that got them outside his house were of the gang that was trying to retrieve my brother Lambert. When the killers couldn't catch him, they saw my father 
and asked him to retrieve him to buy his life. Of course, he could only laugh at them. So they forced my father back inside our home. They shot him three times in front of my grandmother, who up until then was still at home. They later managed to catch my brother. They tortured him until his last breath. In the meantime, when Innocent came back, he announced to me that, of course, I couldn't stay at his house since militia men and women had seen my father coming out of his home. It was known that any Hutu that tried to protect Tutsis was just at danger, uh, was just in danger. Um, so Innocent, out of fear, asked me to leave his house. And I was uh, about to leave when this gang of militia that were closing in to catch my brother. Innocent quickly showed me a banana field where I could hide, of course, for my safety, but for also his own and his own family safety. As I was seated there, I had few moments of seeing militia men um, torturing my brother. They were beating him with clubs on which they had nails. They were beating him, torturing him. He was screaming and screaming for his life, begging for his survival. But I instantly understood that his life was lost. That moment um, gave me the actual realization of how precious life is. Something that my brother could no longer have. This young, ambitious, funny, good-looking man. I said to myself, you could torture him, but you would not. You would not have the pleasure to kill me. Something inside gave me the courage to fight for his survival. From that moment, my two siblings, my two sisters who had already received the message from my father for them to return home were on their way. My older sister, Angelique, was the first to reach me. As she was about to reach our home, Innocent captured her and forced her to come to where I was hiding. She had already received the news that my father was killed, and she had already received news that my brother was being butchered. So she had lost all the desire to leave, and she just wanted to surrender herself to the killers. But Innocent saved her. He convinced her by saying that if they capture, if they manage to capture you, they're going to rape you. So Innocent put me back in touch with my sister Angelique, and we had to find a way to run back where she was hiding. We managed to arrive. When we arrived there, the family where she had been hiding 
refused to take us back in. The mother chased two of us away. She was Angelique's best friend's mother. She had, until then, treated Angelique and really us as her own children. But just two days after the genocide, she did no longer value that bond that had been uniting us. So we had nowhere to go. We were put on the street. We couldn't stay on the street because, of course, killers were back and forth searching for any Tutsi, regardless of age. Angelique's friend, um, that woman's older daughter, came. She showed us an abandoned house where we could hide. When we were there, killers did not delay. A young boy had spotted us entering that unfinished construction site. He alerted the killers. They came shortly later. We were forced to step out. And slowly, the crowds grew bigger and bigger. The same woman, Mama Jean-Marie, who had chased us from her house, and all her siblings were among the people that gathered, deciding how to kill us. We were there. Um, of course, a part of killing was celebration. Killers, most of whom were drunk, maybe drugged, based on judging from the way they looked. They were debating on how they were going to kill us. We could hear some voices uh, pleading for our mercy, but most were cheering. Some were even counting the stories of how my brother, who up until then was still being butchered, was being cut into pieces. I just remember the killers asking us the first question, are you Hutu or are you Tutsi? For me, as naive as I was, I said we are Tutsi. At the same time, my sister answered that we were Hutu. Of course, they knew who we are. Already, as I said, they were telling us how they killed my father a few hours before and how they were uh, their uh, peers were still torturing my brother to death. So we were kept there for a certain period of time. And out of the blue, we saw two male soldiers walking towards us. They approached the crowd and they broke it, asking people to move away. They were armed. And then they started interrogating us. Miraculously, these two soldiers saved our lives because though they were told by the crowd that we were cockroaches and our father had been killed and my brother had been captured, they simply asked the crowd if they thought 
we were the cause of trouble. They said, do you think these two young ladies are the ones that have caused the war that we are fighting? So the crowd, of course, looking at them with their um, uh, weapons, they somehow had to step back. We stayed there until uh, like seven at night. These two soldiers had asked if anyone from the crowd knew us. We had pointed to Mama Jean-Marie, the same woman who had um, chased us from her home earlier that day. She publicly uh, denied knowing us. Her children, at the same time, they were crying like, Mommy, how can you? Of course, you know Angelique. Of course, you know Yvette. But she was clear that she had no, she did not know us and she had no relationship with cockroaches. As we stayed there, I, to some point, felt thirsty. And I said to these two soldiers that I needed a drink. One of the ladies in the crowd offered to give me water. She took me inside her house. She did not just give me water, she gave me fruits. Her name was Claire. And Claire said I, she could not tell um, the soldiers in front of people that she could take us in. But she said, when I go back, I should tell them that she's willing to, to um, hide my sister and myself. So we spent that night at Claire's home. In the middle of the night, though, around midnight, the militiamen had already been informed where we were. So they came to Claire's home, searching for us. Long story short, the next day, Claire couldn't bear the burden. We were put back on the street. Um, where the killers, uh, the soldiers had saved us the night before. So from that moment on, we had a mission of at least reconnecting with my other sister. If it was clear that we had no place to go. So my sister said, let's just try to reconnect with um, our other sister, Yvonne. Um, we did reconnect two days later. And um, on April 12th, our PF was about to overtake Kigali. By that time, there was a... Um, young Hutu man who came, he had been uh, a good friend of my brother, just the same as uh, Jean-Marie, who whose mother had kicked us out of her house. Uh, he came, he found us where we were, and he accepted to take us to hide in his parents' home. Um, when we were hiding there, though, that's when um, the killers had to stop every killing in Kigadi 
forcing all of us to leave towards the south. Why? Because that was on the 12th of April. The forces of uh, the Rwandan Patriotic uh, Front was closing in um, on uh, the then government forces. And uh, the killers decided to uh, cleanse uh, off Kigali, forcing everyone to move towards the south to be able to fight um, the RPF. So we were forced to leave towards the south. And from that moment on, we lived for the rest of 100 days among the killers. Day by day, we were facing people who were, um, who, um, were ready to kill us. Initially, we were moving with people who knew us. We, to some point, managed to meet my aunt on the road who had managed to buy an identification card pretending that she was a Hutu. She was married to a Hutu man who was kind enough to help her. She not only had an identification card stating that she was Hutu, she also had managed to be paired with uh, a Hutu family that was under protection of militiamen. So we lived with my aunt for a few uh, weeks, but it did not delay because militiamen from Kigali happened to know where we were hiding. They came for us. We survived uh, miraculously. And then we were, my aunt managed to arrange and send us somewhere in a place called Jitarama in another Burundian Hutu family. We lived there for a few weeks, but our luck did not last because our killers attacked. Of course, it was not easy to hide because being a Tutsi is something that was clearly defined, there had been um, over three, um, actually over uh, since 1931, when the Belgians introduced identification cards, Rwandans had been administratively speaking, socially speaking, identified by their ethnicity. So as Tutsis, it wasn't just something we talked in classrooms. It was something that was engraved in our administrative papers. But it was also something that was defined and identified by physical features. So uh, it was also something that was uh, identified by people's name. Just by stating my family name, eyes were um, open. You know, uh, so uh, anywhere you were in any part of Rwanda, from the shape of your fingers to the shape of your face, to your height, to, to, to your entire physical features, um, they had, the studies have been so, um, so detailed that you were identified even when you could hide your identification card. So throughout um, the genocide, 
there was nowhere to hide because anyone, even when you managed to read foreign lands, you were just by the looks, you were singled out. Still, we had to fight. Still, we managed to survive. Along the way, they were always exceptional human beings, exceptional Hutu beings who, despite the high cost, took risky decisions to protect us. That was in part why we managed to escape. But it would just be a business of a day one could hide you today and put you back on the street the next day. Or one could hide you, like in my case, while killing your fellow Tutsi. In my case, because of this paternal aunt of mine who had managed to buy a fake ID stating that she was Hutu, she convinced um, one vicious killer from that part where we were in Gitarama she convinced him that we looked Tutsi because our mother was Tutsi, but indeed we were Hutu. Well, I think he believed her, or maybe he didn't believe her, but he was um, seduced by the price of a car that my auntie put forth if he was to hide my two sisters and myself until the end of the genocide. For, for the biggest part, we lived with him. For the biggest part, we lived under his protection. It did not stop killers, particularly those who happened to know us from Kigali, to come for us. To some point, there was an open fight between the killers from Kigali who knew us so well and the killers from Gitarama, this part where we were, because this guy was so convinced that he had to protect us and being a vicious killer, of course, he wanted to mark his territory. An open fight broke to the point of almost shooting each other and off we ran. So um, throughout for um, the rest of 100 uh, days, we moved, we marched, um, walking distances that uh, I can never measure because we did not always take the main roads. Sometimes we even went in cycles. We moved a prefecture to another from Kigali all the way to the border of the um, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, just running for our lives. Along the way, you're not just hiding, you're not just in fear, you know, you are exposed to all kind of torture. You are seeing your own people butchered, cut with machete, thrown into rivers. You're coming across bodies that are no longer looking like bodies uh, because they had been thrown in the rivers of Nyabarongo as the killers were attempting to send us to what they say was our home, being Ethiopia through uh, the waters of Nile. We saw rape, 
gang rape. We saw rotted bodies. We saw life and death. Can I ask, amongst those moments, what kept you motivated or kept you going? Well, as I stated, the death or the atrocious killings of my brother made me understand that the only way to revenge, the only way to give him justice was for me to leave. He has kept me going throughout. I know to some point, actually, my two sisters, though they were older, they wanted to give up. I did not. I remember there was this um, um, very scary um, place where we had to uh, to crawl, uh, stepping on dead bodies and even stepping on uh, freshly cut uh, agonizing people. My sisters didn't want to go through it. I pushed them through. I literally physically pushed them through. So there was that inner um, thirst for justice, at least for my brother. It wasn't really much for me. Then I was constantly thinking of the, the atrocious death of Lambert, who was and remains um, um, one of um, my beloved siblings. So a part of it, of course, it started off as my brother and then Eventually, you understand that uh, it wasn't just him because, um, you know, after one day, of course, on the ninth, it was my brother, it was my father, it was my grandmother. And then as time went on, so many other family members were killed um, in uh, equality. I mean, the situation got so bad that to some point you knew that you were actually the sole survivor. You couldn't fathom anyone else still breathing, uh, given the magnitude of, uh, uh, of uh, the, the campaign to kill everything identified as a truth, including fetus, you know. So, but uh, for me, um, really what kept me going with the determination to, to live was exactly uh, because I understood that a life was something so precious that my beloved brother so badly wanted, but lost in a very um, atrocious way. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense as a very strong reason to to keep going and to, to persist. So at what point did you sort of understand that you were safe? Like, how did you ultimately get to, quote, safety? Well, the one unpatriotic front uh, that I mentioned uh, was our only hope. The international community that knew clearly had received all kind of uh, um, um, alerts. Um, in 1993, there had been a UN human rights report that clearly established that uh, a genocide against Tutsi had been prepared. Warnings were repeated 
I can name the genocide facts of January 11th sent by the then commander of uh, UN peacekeeping uh, force, uh, then General Dada, now retired um, Senator General Romeo Dadao uh, from Canada. He sent a clear fax uh, where he uh, was sharing with the United Nations this information that uh, an informant had um, shared with him that uh, they, there is a clear plan to eliminate anyone identified um, as a Tutsi or an ally of Tutsi by the then government. Um, he, the informant had gone even as far as detailing the type of weapons and the, 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 where they had been hidden and the training of Indira uh, Hamge and the Mugambi militia men and women. But instead of acting on this information, the United Nations Security Council um, was not briefed on this uh, uh, horrific, uh, uh, you know, events. Uh, rather, uh, General Dadar was forced to reveal this information to the government of Rwanda, which put the informant's life in danger. Up to this moment, no one knows. So there had been information, but uh, the international community only acted in support of the killers, meaning that wherever the government ran out of money, international um, organizations such as um, IMF and World Bank went beyond the approved ceilings to continue to lend money, the same money that was used to buy machetes. Genocide is very expensive. Genocide requires people who are intellectuals, people who have financial means. There are superpowers that were behind this maneuvering to make sure that a country that was so, um, uh, so much in debt continued to receive uh, you know, financial support that it did not qualify for. Other countries supported by making sure that this country that, that was under uh, military embargo was still able to receive uh, weapons. Machetes kept coming in under the cover of certain powerful countries. So the international community's um, action was rather to support the killings. Very few exceptions, um, particularly um, when well, genocide was unfolding, very few people spoke uh, against the silence of the international community in terms of even calling the genocide what it was. Some were still framing it the barbaric uh, tribal war. Some were still looking for ways to nickname it because they knew that by the Genocide Convention of 1945, acknowledging that a genocide was unfolding called for their intervention. So as all this was happening, few men and women of the Nwanan Patriotic Front 
put their own lives in danger. They were so fierce in fighting to save our lives, even knowing that those were at much greater risks. So really, uh, my coming into safety came with the liberation of Rwanda with the Rwandan Patriotic Force, um, which uh, seized uh, the biggest part of Rwanda in July 1994. At the same time, at that time for me, I was um, in uh, this part that was under the cover of the French so-called humanitarian zone turquoise, humanitarian force. There was nothing humanitarian about that force because they did not come for me. When my sister and myself ran to them, in fact, we had spotted one of the killers that we knew so well that if he had the opportunity to put his hands on us, it would be the end of our lives. We ran to these French barracks. We, we uh, spoke the best, um, you know, French we could manage. They did not even blink. They, it was almost like we talked to ourselves. And of course, we had to run back. So, um, yes, I came to safety thanks to the uh, men and women of the one and patriotic front that fought their way through to liberate Rwanda and save our lives. And um, I stayed in Rwanda until 2004 when I um, came to the U.S. Uh, but, uh, you know, I did not uh, come to the U.S. for anything beyond just opportunities. So by that time, I had already um, sort of reconstructed my life, managed to reconnect with uh, the few siblings uh, of my own, um, and, uh, you know, life was more or less, um, you know, back to what I would say the post-genocide normal. I was um, uh, a student in college. Um, I, was, uh, I was working. So Rwanda of then was on the right path towards reconstruction. Can you talk more about how Rwanda has reformed its democracy and how people are now able to exist peacefully or coexist peacefully? Because that is pretty unique, I think, in situations like this. It is very unique. Credit goes to uh, the same liberation movement I mentioned. The spirits behind the liberation was not just to liberate Rwanda from um, the government that had embraced extremism in all type of form. Extremism and discrimination that was demonstrated by not just racial or ethnic discrimination, I should say, but also discrimination that was religious 
here we're talking about, I can give an example of Muslim who were just as marginalized under that, um, you know, extremist government. Um, the same government that was playing uh, regional politics, the same government that was dividing to rule. So RPF was built in 1987, um, RPA, Rwanda Patriotic Army, on the spirit of unity. Their um, values, core values, uh, were exactly to unite Rwandans. Was their mission was to build a country where every Rwandan would feel equal. So uh, that's something that is easy to say when you need to make it happen in a country that had just suffered from a genocide, that has just seen one million people dead, that had just seen more than 2.5 million people fleeing, that had seen, um, you know, millions of people that had been forced into exile for the last three decades, that had seen their families not only killed in 1994, but killed previously. Let's also remember the, the killings of Tutsi uh, started in 1950s. It went on in 1959, that's when the biggest um, uh, tragedy happens. The series uh, of killings of Tutsi continued in 1962-63, in 1972, 1978. Um, so this country uh, was destroyed in every sense of way, politically, economically, socially, we were just ashes. We were just um, really a land of dead bodies and dry bones and and uh, and, uh, and dry blood. Even the few that were coming home, they were so torn inside. The same RPF soldiers I'm talking about, not only they were losing their own people along the way, but they were fighting to save people that they came home to to find dead most 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 of the time. So reconstructing all of that truly requested individuals who had a vision beyond self. It requested leadership that could um, raise above individual losses, individual griefs, and even individual physical pain, because some of these people obviously were also, um, you know, handcuffed physically, emotionally, and otherwise. Um, for us survivors, particularly, it was um, even shocking to hear someone talk about forgiveness. How do you forgive, you know? Uh, but um, over time, you understand, at least for me, I embraced forgiveness because I understood that it was actually the only way for me to be. Being without surviving, being fully 
um, as someone that uh, my people were no longer would have wished me to be. So I personally embraced forgiveness first and foremost because I understood that hatred was eating me up. Um, and then slowly you look beyond self. You understand that if you have to build a country for yourself and your, your, your offspring, you have to, to, to look beyond yourself. You have to imagine what you could have wanted these perpetrators to have thought, to have done. So that's how forgiveness came. Um, and I think uh, something else that has made it really real was the fact that Rwandans were given equal access, equal access to opportunities. Then all of a sudden, we're no longer fighting to go to school. We are trying to make, up to this moment, Rwanda is uh, among the very few uh, countries where we have reached near universal access to, 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 primary, to primary education. We are fighting to give people access to, um, to, here I'm talking about at the primary level, I'm talking about more than uh, 95%, um, you know, free access to public uh, education. We are fighting to even uh, tell people, even those who are not um, of uh, primary level age, to go back and get some sort of training we are making it possible for those who want to start business to have access to finances. We have created a room for women to feel like they are an integral part of reconstructing Rwanda, particularly since after the genocide. Either more smell since uh, the idea of um, uh, wiping off the uh, ethnic uh, uh, group of Tutsi. Mel was the first target, but then, of course, women were also killed in, in a, an even more atrocious way. Um, we were not just raped. We were not just gang raped. We were raped with objects. We were raped in front of our children. We were raped in front of our, our, our husbands or of our fathers, of our mothers before we were killed. Or sometimes we were too, too, too much raped to be left out there to live slowly. Some of us were raped to even be infected with uh, HIV on purpose. You know, some of the rapists were selectively, um, you know, HIV positive. So after the genocide, the wounds obviously were so raw. There were so many uh, of a magnitude that no one can really describe or even comprehend. But uh, the leadership we have had this collective desire to, to not the same sentiment I had to live, uh, I think was somehow shared across most of us in the sense that we felt that we have the responsibility to be not just for ourselves, but for our people who are no longer. So then surviving is not an option. You have to, you must thrive. But then of course we benefited from the support first and foremost, of a leadership that really um, rose beyond um, individual suffering and just wanted to build the same Rwanda that our ancestors has always envisioned and, and that has always, um, you know, fought for. And then over time, you know, life comes back 
over time, as you make one step, as you make it back to school, as you graduate, as you push your siblings through, life somehow regained um, a sense. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like an incredible example that Rwanda could set for the rest of the world, because that business of healing is no joke, especially at a national level. So I just before we close out, I wanted to ask you just one kind of reflective question of how has your relationship with your own story changed, you know, over the past almost 30 years? You know, do you feel more distant from it or do you feel like you are still actively healing from it on a personal level? Healing is, uh, is an eternal journey. Um, this is because I'm now a mother. I have a beautiful three-year-old daughter. Moments like her birth made me wonder what life could have been had I had my family, had I had, you know. So what changes over time is, and I think it's it varies for people, but for me, you learn how to carry your burden in a where it's not too psychologically damaging. You even have moments where you celebrate your people. I see them through her. I talk to her about them. Um, I... I'm in a better place than most um, because as we go through this pandemic where most of us had to be in one way or another, let's uh, say, confined, I couldn't help but wonder how fellow survivors who have lost their entire families and they were forced to be you know, alone during this pandemic, how they were able to cope. I'm sure I am among the privileged just by the fact that I had my daughter with me. Some of us are still suffering from the psychological damage from the genocide. And when you think of the impact of this pandemic, for example, you know it's not... Um, you know, it's it's just like the wound that was still bleeding might have been opened by this new, uh, you know, uh, tragic event. So, you know, it varies for me. Um, of course, uh, I have also had the privilege to publicly speak about my experience for so many years. That has provided some healing uh, and uh, it has provided even access to people like the Holocaust survivors who have gone through uh, similar uh, or comparable tragic events, but who managed to rise from them. I have drawn inspiration from them. 
but I know that uh, my journey might be different from many survivors. I think what you said about, you know, you learn how to carry your burden is really an inspiring way to look at things. And I can't even imagine, you know, what the pandemic would have added onto that trauma for so many people. But Yvette, thank you so much for sharing your story and all of these personal, inspiring ways that you look at the world. And I think you have taught us a lot. So thank you so much for being with us today. Well, you know, uh, the lessons uh, uh, of the 1994 genocide against Tutsi, I believe can really be very useful to the world. It's not just about the tragedy. It, it should also be about the strength of human spirit. I talked about the strength of the uh, RPF in fighting for us to save us, the sacrifices made. But let's also think of how these lessons can inspire us to see ourselves as one global community, to understand empathy, to understand human rights as in my rights should be the same as your rights. We are still struggling to accept immigrants from left and right. But yet, we all have been immigrants in one way or another. We are still struggling to embrace the fact that the, that, that the people that we define as the other can have access to the same uh, privileges that we have decided to make ours. So I think the biggest... Um, uh, lesson from the 1994 genocide against Tutsi, having looked uh, at this from leaving it in 1994 to today, there is no single one that has profited from it. Those who thought they were fighting for power, they lost everything. So for me, what I hope uh, uh, this tragedy can uh, teach us all as a global community as we remember, let's unite to renew. Let's unite, draw from this tragic history to build a future that uh, can allow us to thrive, that can allow us to thrive in a sustainable way by moving together. So that would be, um, in my view, the only way to make sure that uh, the never again that we have been um, repeating since 1945 becomes a reality. Until we see each other as the same global citizens, we cannot intervene where intervention is needed. We cannot halt any um, abuse when we have to do it. So my hope, as we remember the 1994 genocide against Tutsi, in memory of those who are no longer, let's just raise today with the determination to fight for human rights for all as a foundation 
to building the future that we all deserve. Thank you. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Yvette. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Sammy Sage, and this has been the Betches Up Podcast. The Betches Sup Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Betches.